You guys are in for an unexpected laugh today as I host the return of fan favorites Alec Wack from episode 1 and J. Matthew Scruggs from episode 5. We discuss 2018's horror tragedy Hereditary, starring Tony Collette and Alex Wolfe. A little bit of housekeeping first. If you're a fan of the podcast, make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. I can't tell you how much it helps with some of the download platforms and their algorithms. So please take a moment to do that. Also, if you're getting a kick out of the show and you have suggestions, feel free to drop us a line at gutsymediapodcast at gmail.com. We do read each one and we will try to respond to them all. Lastly, our local business spotlight of the week this week is Pure Imagination Cafe, located at 2997 Buffalo Road. This swanky little cafe has some great dishes, some great coffee, and a really nice staff. Uh, It's got a local feel. I love going there myself. Uh, They have some outdoor seating. Um, They also have a great play area for your kids. If you're looking to have a cup of coffee with some friends and let the kids play, this is definitely a go-to spot. Just really nice people. I strongly recommend. And now, on with the show. right-hand corner what do you got there an air purifier what's going on down there it's an air conditioner man that's one of those ductless ones yeah california we uh we live on the the ocean no you you put your window up and you have fun (laughs) why are those two things connected we live near the ocean and there's no ac because everybody thinks oh you live on the water wind Mm -hmm. i'm not falling for this again bobby bobby will like lull me into uh, you know this weird banter and then i'm like hey are we live he's like oh yeah yeah relax i'll cut that, it I'll- that's his that's his shtick we're not falling for it we're not falling for it as he, he's recording Damn i've been, he's recording I've been recording for 11 minutes so far <laughs> <laughs> it's like, um, i don't like it but why like- why are the two connected ask this fruit. is fruit cart hard seltzer what I, is <laughs> I just like the fact that it says contains alcohol because there's a chance that it doesn't. You like you right. look and you're like if a kid in the lunchroom pulled it out of his lunchbox, nobody would question it. What what's this what's the second leading ingredient? Estrogen? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Um actually it's Burn. Just, the Surgeon General women and men named Alex should not <laughs> drink alcohol. I have a I have a question. Joke's for you on there. you, I'm not a man. So <laughs> a boy. Rewind 48 hours, you know, tall Matthew Scruggs is walking through the store. What what possesses you to buy that specific brand of hard seltzer? Okay, so, I mean, it's a lot of, this is, this is uh, let's just say homegrown. This is from California, right? So, Where they don't have AC. So they have AC in California, but again, I, I can see the ocean from my, my property, right? I'm yeah. a brag. Yeah, I mean small. Yeah, small. Uh, what is that called? Flex. I'm flexing, um, but I'm not right. Like I'm paying probably much more than I should be via the BAH for this house. But uh, yeah, man. Um, they think okay. Well, you don't need AC. You don't. You don't need that. You've got the ocean breeze. Well, I mean it's record highs in California. In case you're not watching the news, everything's burning. Isn't so- it like every year though? Isn't every year something burning? Yes, yes. I mean, especially 2020. Come on. Hard seltzer uh, made with real fruit juice, uh, 105 calories for people that are watching 
their figure. And that was my suspicion. That was my suspicion. My suspicion was that that the the tall Matthew Scruggs was was checking calorie intake, and that's why he went with the I mean, fruit cart. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I would drink a Yingling if I had them, if I had access. But like, there's this Mason Dixon line, and all. Wait, wait you guys don't have Yingling out there? Oh, uh, we don't. It essentially, if it if it doesn't make it past Oklahoma, we never see it, right? And Yinglings don't make it past. Wow. Yeah, I don't think they even make it to West Texas, which is crazy to me, right? Um, what about Red Stripe? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's more of a <laughs> an Islander beer, but that's yeah, well, from that's, a, that's a weird thing to ask. Them. What about Red Stripe? Do they well, have because stripe? I, the two things, the two alcohol beverages that I distinctly remember Mr. Scruggs liking are Red Stripe and Land Shark. Oh yeah, yeah. Jimmy Buffett's beer still going strong. He sold off to sell. Yeah. And now he's drinking pure moonshine. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Get the extra alcohol out of that. I just don't think you guys should condemn this, you know, yeah, until yeah. you part, especially Alec, right? Like, this guy drinks the weakest apple cider bitch beers known to man. And so then you're going to come at my, my seltzer water. I'm hydrating, drinking. It got really dark in Alec's room because of all the shade that just got thrown his way. <laughs> Can we just get on with the show? <laughs> so who picked this movie? This was Matt, right? This is all Matt's yeah. doing. First yeah. off, I am I'm shocked sorry. that Alec agreed to this because you were notorious for hating uh, horror movies. And this is, I mean, this is, while I didn't find it very scary at all, and we'll go into detail about that, I- I'm surprised you were so on board with this. Uh, well, I think that what it came down to in this particular instance is that the critics loved it so much. Like, I'm willing to sacrifice my own enjoyment of a film for what critics say because I'm a, a drone. So they say it's good. I'm going to go out and watch it. Um, and and it was. It was a great movie. 100%. Matt, you like this movie? Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, what? Like, what? I think it's a good movie. I wouldn't say that I like it. That's a good movie. Can I, can I do that? I don't. I don't. That that doesn't make any sense. You wouldn't say it's a good movie, but you liked it. No, no, other way around. It's oh. a good movie, but I don't like it. I mean, I wouldn't watch it again, right? But it was a good movie. What about you, Matt? Have you seen this before? Yes. Uh, and so, insert, you know, truth and transparency here. Uh, never, never watched it since I uh, watched it the first time uh, in Iraq last year. So, I am ready to talk and fully dive into the, uh, the material here. But, again, I, I looked for times and opportunities to watch this, and I wanted to watch it with my wife because... I can't. I couldn't bring myself to watch it alone. Not only did you make us reschedule this, but you didn't even watch the movie. No, no. I've watched this movie really almost twice. I mean, almost twice. <laughs> I almost watched it like four or five times. Because I, I, but... I watched it once. I mean, I, and I'm assuming you do the, uh, the professional thing. Bobby, by, you know, pausing, taking notes, you know, kind of recording the, the, the issue occurring. Yeah. So, so I, 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 I record a lot of crack with a bunch of with a bunch of dudes after we were we watched uh, Midsommar. That's what sparked all this for me. Right, same director. Yes, There's Ari Aster, um, who directed Midsommar right after this movie and hasn't directed anything since. He also directed. I mean, he's got quite a quite a few films on his rap sheet here, um, about ten total. None of which you would even know of. In fact, most of them are just short films. This is his first full-length film directing. 
which is ludicrous to me um, because it is a pretty, I mean, it's a $10 million budget. So roughly, you know, small uh, budget when it comes to movies, but it's got some pretty big name actors in it. That's what I thought. Yeah. So, and you like this movie. Out of those two that we've just talked about. And I just was like, okay, well, what's realistic getting these two guys to watch? Uh, now that I know, you know, a, a little bit more about your preference of movies. I was really glad to know that uh, Alex is going to watch this thing. Um, you know, I, I guess because it's a bit of a, I don't want to say horror movie. It's a, say, suspenseful, somewhat scary movie, right? Um, but I thought, uh, yeah, yeah, I thought it was better than the two. But no, I, I'm with Alex. And ultimately, that's why I didn't watch it again. I don't think I can watch this movie again. <laughs> so that's really... It, it kind of gives me the same vibe as Skeleton Key. Like, Skeleton Key is a good movie. It's got kind of a twist at the end. But, you know, the vibe of it is is similar. There's some paranormal activities happening. We don't really know what to believe, what not to believe. Um, and, I, and I liked that movie. And, like, the same way I like this movie. Like, it's, you know, I would recommend it to somebody that was interested in it. So, so here's my issue. Um... It's not, I agree with you, it's not really a horror movie. Um, there is no real big jump scares. There's, there's one specific jump scare that got me. Um, mm-hmm. But for the most part, it, I didn't find it very scary. I didn't find it very horror-ish. Um, which is fine, providing the movie has a really good plot. I mean, I'm, I like a good, deep plot that I can sink my teeth into. I didn't get that from this movie. Um, what What plot that they had that I thought could have been good. They just didn't give you enough detail on. I mean, you don't even find out who's trying to possess who until like halfway through the movie. And they don't even go much in depth about the character. In fact, in doing a lot of the research for this movie and getting some of the backstory behind the sto- the, the plot and the storyline, this, this whole thing could have been much more broad and, and really meaty. Um, the demon, if you will, that is trying to, to, to be possessor, or if you will, I don't even know how the word you could use, um, is a real demon. He's a real king in hell in the Bible, which is insane. And they could have really gone deep into the lore there and, and made it more interesting. But from my perspective, that's what I like, the fact that they didn't, right? Because I think that we don't, as the viewer, know who to believe, right? Is there really somebody trying to possess or is it the mom is crazy because of, you know, what her mom did to her? And I'm sure we'll get into the plot here. But I kind of like that tension of what do we believe? See, I, I, I think that I, I understand that's what his intent was. And he was trying to paint this conflict between is the mom going crazy or isn't she? But at no point did I not believe her. Because at no point when they were showing some of this stuff, were they showing it as like this is fake or this is false? I mean, this is stuff that was really happening and is presented to the audience as factual information. So I, I, I never got. I think go, uh, even with the factual stuff, right, the layout of everything she was doing, right, the the step by step or play by play of kind of her breakdown, her mental breakdown. I think that started to cause greater conflict and like, OK, yes, family's a little a little janky. There's clearly some weird isms that have been passed down, but ultimately I think the family's just crazy. Um, and obviously they had two kids, uh, you know, that, that further, uh, or caused the further devolvement of that family dynamic. So I, I, the whole time, right. I'm like, okay, this woman is 
absolutely crazy. The husband's got to get the kids out of the house, right? So I agree. The the husband was the best character. Oh yeah, he, he is the only normal person in the entire movie. And what's even crazier is in a lot of the the um, post stuff that I was watching, that the post interviews and stuff with a lot of the cast and the writers and directors and stuff, that was done on purpose. He is also the only member of the family that is not blood related, mm-hmm. which is why he's presented as the only sane one, because the idea much like the title hints to, is that this is some sort of blood-transmitted thing. It's hereditary, if you will. Whoa, mind <laughs> blown. Ancestry impacts family, huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and like I said, I think there was some substance here. The The movie, especially once we get into explaining it, you'll you'll pick up on the fact that there is an interesting story here. It's just, in my opinion, not presented as interesting as it could have been. Um, so opening scene, immediately fell in love with this movie. First off, the movie has no opening credits. It goes right in, which is very unusual for a movie. But it goes into, you see this miniature dollhouse. And it starts zooming in on one of the rooms. And as it gets close enough, the characters come into the room. And you're taken right into the house with the characters but from the view of the dollhouse, which I thought was really cool. The framing of the opening scene in the bedroom makes it look really big, uh, makes it look dollhouse-esque. Um, and that is because the main character, uh, Annie, who played by Tony Collette, who is British. Did you know that? Or, or, I don't know, Australian or something weird. She's not English, which is crazy because she's in a lot of movies. And I never once thought she was doing an accent. Um, she creates Benichers. Um which, I mean, I guess somebody has to, you know, it's got to be somebody's job out there. Job. It's an it's odd an job. It's an odd job. But they, then, people have a job. <laughs> they take it a step further and she doesn't just create miniatures for like other people to sell, to make money. She creates miniatures about her life as well, which again, okay, uh, some hobby or some sort of interest to blow off some steam. Um, but as we'll get into in the movie, some of the scenes of her life that she decides to create miniatures of are extremely odd and disturbing. And th- uh, that just, I couldn't, I couldn't take his reality. No, but I think it just goes further and further. You're right. Somebody has to do this job. It's an interesting job for someone to do in a movie. But I think it just further goes into who the hell is this crazy person that's making these models right. of these events? Like, you can believe that she's a crazy person going in a downward descent, you know, and she's ready to kill her entire family. Like, yeah. I mean, you can kind of see those things. That people are buying this. <laughs> what so, is the eBay account and what does it look like? That's what I'm but, thinking. Yeah, it, it seemed like she was some sort of artist, right? Because there's, there's points throughout the movie where this studio is trying to get in contact with her saying, hey, where are you at with this production, right? She, 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 she's commissioned to do this work. And that is, you know, so this is her living. This is her livelihood, being fucking crazy. What, is, what does the father do? What is his occupation? Because he's got to be the breadwinner. Some sort of doctor, writer, professor, nerdy <laughs> type Those are of drastically job. different occupations. He he, I, he corduroy he had corduroys on. I feel like I some sort of corduroy jacket. Kind of therapist, no? Yeah, some something professional, something well-paying and professional. He had a doctor 
uh, or a Mr. Rogers sweater, and yes. he was, and he, and loafers at one point in time. I was like, this guy is right. Magoo, is he, right? Now. He is a uh, type of person that wears loafers, and he he's that special type of person. And he seemed to be trying to be overly understanding of his son, and the yeah the the weird dynamic that they had, right? Because he was trying to process his son instead of just be a father. Yeah, like the, the great the great dinner scene. Which I'm sure we'll oh get my to. God. He, he really tries to do his best as a sane person to, Because you know, his wife is having a nervous breakdown and is becoming the worst mother if she wasn't already. Um, but yeah, we'll get into that. So so you had this opening scene, which I really loved. Um, and that at that point is the peak of my love for this movie is that opening scene. Because <laughs> there's, there's immediately a conversation to follow where they attempt to make a... a they they attempt to make a natural conversation, but ultimately it's just used to point out that the mother and father have two kids, a daughter and a son. The daughter is quite younger than the son. The son seems to be about 16-ish. Uh, the daughter seems to be probably in her ten, 8 to 10 years old. Um, and they immediately point out she's allergic to nuts. And they, they work it into the conversation like it's supposed to be natural, but it comes out as like a glaring... This this is going to be a plot point later. She's allergic to nuts. In case anybody doesn't know, our daughter's allergic to nuts. I think they were trying to set up the fact that there's a helicopter parent, the crazy mom. She's, you know, the mom who just now was meticulously focusing on painting a, a bus bench. And now she's like flying around the house helicoptering, right? Like, OK, I, yeah, no, I, I could I could buy that if the next scene after that wasn't her going to so so you find out that her mother has passed away and she's not dealing with it very well which is it's fine she goes to a support group to kind of let her emotions out and she proceeds to tell the support group that her mother had this weird like obsession with her daughter and like she just she made me let her feed the daughter and it's like okay well i mean i guess a newborn baby like the grandparents want to feed the baby or put the baby to bed. Then it goes to a miniature that she's made. So again, she's made this miniature of something that happened previously in her life where the grandmother is breastfeeding the baby. So the helicopter mom, that didn't happen to you. That was not how you were raised. (laughs) I I couldn't, I couldn't process like what? What? This wasn't seen as odd by anybody else watching the movie. No, I mean I think that's the point. I ultimately and why I recognized why I thought this was going to be a great movie. Um, so by the way, psychiatrist, I was right. You know, for a guy uh, seen the movie once, uh, and uh, no, number two, like this movie is weird, right? Because of this Ari Aster or whatever. I mean, he's clearly got a weird way of presenting uh, plot points and theme lines. And I mean, goodness, I honestly, I wish we could have watched this movie together because I don't know that we would have gotten much of the dialogue. But I think that's the point, right? Like he is trying to quickly get you to the, the one of the you know primary uh, bridges of the movie and say, okay, well we're we're all here. It was abrupt. It was a bit of a train wreck, but you know that this woman is crazy, right? Like Agreed. Agreed. Bridge one, woman is crazy. Bridge two, daughter, clearly overwatched or whatever, right? Yeah, so so the 
he's definitely trying to paint that there was a relationship between the grandmother and the granddaughter that went above and beyond a simple grand grandma, you know, relationship that she had some sort of uh, additional interest in the granddaughter. And uh, after the funeral, uh, there's there's so there's a couple of weird scenes where there are people in the funeral kind of hovering around the granddaughter, um, and and it's it's very clear that the inner circle of the grandmother has some sort of added interest in the granddaughter or the family in general. Um, and the granddaughter has a conversation with uh, Annie, the mom, afterwards, where she says, "Well, who's going to take care of me now?" And Annie's like, "Excuse me, you know, I'm I'm your mother. I'm right here." And she's, "Well, who's going to take care of me when you die?" And it's like, oh, okay. So add it twist. Here we go. Like yeah, there, there's, there's, so there's an odd relationship between the grand. So here's the other thing. When I, when I mentioned that uh, Annie goes to the support group, so they leave the funeral and Annie, it, you know, tells her husband, I'm going to see a movie and then just leaves. This happens twice in the, in the film. Uh, the second one's even more abnormal than the first time, but out of nowhere, she says, I'm going to the movies, and then just leaves, doesn't attempt to take anybody. I don't know about you guys, but, I mean, in a house full of family members, I couldn't just be like, hey, I'm going to leave and go to the movies. I think that, uh, I mean, I don't know, man. So, I won't lie. I was, and now that you're you're stating some of the scenes, very intriguing movie, right? <laughs> <laughs> Come on! Was was it not intriguing prior to this? No, I mean, I I just remember all the odd parts and thinking, this is not allowable, right? Like, how does this guy? Because I, I don't know how much. Right. I mean, I read the Wikipedia version. I think it said it made like eighty million. So, like, which is ridiculous. Yeah. So it it makes eighty million on a ten million dollar budget. It, it it huge um huge return on investment here. I'm surprised it doesn't have a sequel greenlit yet. Uh, maybe it does. I'll have to look that up. So then How we get to the we get to the main uh, point. The ending. Sorry, Bobby. So, what did you say? I was gonna say, how do they how do they have a second one? Oh, you could totally have a second one. It's Hollywood. You could have a second one of anything. You could do a prequel. I mean, there you go. There's your sequel. Sequel prequel. Um. So that then this you have the real change in the movie, which we all. We, uh, me and Alec watched this movie at different times and immediately text each other because we knew when this point in the movie hits. It hits right around um, 30 minutes. The son tells the mom, uh, I want to go to a party. or I, I want to yeah, go to a party. She said, you're going to be drinking. He said, no, I'm not going to be drinking. Well, then bring your sister. This is actually my favorite conversation in the entire movie because this, to me, is an actual conversation that a mother or father might have with their child who's 16 and wants to go to, it's so awkward and tense. And like, it's just this, like, um, are you going to be drinking? Like, it's like, you know, it's this kind of right. back and forth action. This is the realist it gets in the movie. Absolutely. I love this I, conversation. I agree. I think the conversation is pretty normal. So, uh, Peter plays, P- Peter is, is the brother. He's played by Alex Wolf. Um, he's not really in a whole lot of other things in his career. Um, he's in bad education. He's in Jumanji, but he plays like one of the normal kids. So he's in not most of the movie. Well, no, um, he's he's Dwayne the Rock Johnson, right? In in the first one, um, but again, he's uh, in the first five minutes. In the last five minutes, the rest of the movie is Dwayne the Rock Johnson. He really sets the stage for him. I'm just saying, <laughs> and he's also credited for being in an untitled M Night Shyamalan movie. So that's really going to launch his career. Um, so he 
his mom tells him, basically, take your sister. You're obviously going to a high school party where you've told me as an honest 16-year-old there's going to be no alcohol there, and I believe you. So by all means, take your you know eight-year-old sister with you. Um, they get to the movie, <laughs> they get, excuse me, they get to the party, and upon walking in the door, there is a person in the kitchen who is chopping up a 50-pound bag of peanuts or or, or, or pecans or something like an absurd <laughs> amount of nuts are being chopped up in the kitchen that the brother does not notice the brother immediately goes into the bedroom with some friends and begins smoking pot and leaves the the sister to just kind of rumpus around this stranger's house at a high school party with the smorgasbord of different kinds of nuts being chopped up in the kitchen which are apparently going to be put into a cake because Every high school party I've ever gone to, somebody's making a fresh cake. It's jokes on you. You've never gone to a high school party before. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I go to a lot of them now, but it's <laughs> a lot more awkward. So uh, she, the sister, as we all can see in the foreshadowing here, uh, eventually gets her hands on some of the cake, proceeds to eat it, um, and then goes. And then there's like an absurd amount of time that passes from the time she ate the cake to the time where she goes running into the the room where the brother is and says, "I can't breathe. You know, some my throat feels like it's closing. I need some help." The brother freaks out, as I mean, he should. Uh, gets her in the car and proceeds to try to drive her to the hospital. And That's again, we can kind of. I can't imagine that. Right. Yeah. right. Well, exactly. So we can kind of see where this is going. Uh, at least you think you you know where this is going. Um, he's driving, you know, speeding down a highway. The, the sister's in the backseat, you know, grabbing at her throat, proceeds to roll down the window to try to get some fresh air, then sticks her entire upper torso out the window, um, at which point he sees a dead deer carcass in the street, swerves to avoid it, and comes, comes, <laughs> comes really close to a telephone pole, um, does not hurt the car, but does decapitate the sister. I mean, who did not see that coming? Come on. So let me let me let me go back because I remember this movie coming out in theaters and not wanting to see it back then because I thought it was going to be a scary movie because I'm a big sissy. Because <laughs> you drink because you drink hard seltzer. Drinker, man. She has such a prominent. I mean, and they do this purposely, right? She has such a prominent role. Yeah. In the previews. To mislead you to think she was going to be some sort of, you she's know, in the movie poster. It's her and the mom in the movie poster. Mm-hmm. She's in it for eight minutes. She's got eight minutes of screen time or something like that. You so know, before not, this happens. It's not just in the promotional stuff. I mean, the whole first 30 minutes is set up as this weird relationship between the daughter and the grandmother. Yeah. The grandmother's dead. The daughter's kind of creepy. She like she was chopping up. Uh, she's like There's a dead bird that hits the window when she's in school and she goes outside during recess and cuts the bird's head off and like saves it. Like it's just, she's definitely teed up as this weird figure in the movie and then like Matt said, wham. Gone. She's decapitated. But but we don't even we don't even quite. This is a good du- directing style, right? He he hits you know he swerves and hits the deer, slams on the brakes, stops for a moment, and then kind of just drives off. Like you don't you don't see her quite yet. You he he goes home. So this is this to me is one of the creepiest scenes in the movie, yeah. and the reason for it is because you literally see this child i mean he's 16 he's this kid 
have a breakdown. So he, the, the sister's head comes off. Her body falls back into the car and he stops in the road. And there's this long pause and there's this close up on his face and he doesn't turn around. He just kind of sits there for a second. And as if like removing himself from reality, he slowly kind of creeps forward and then drives home, parks the car, goes inside and lays down in his bed. And I, I don't remember if they show him falling asleep or not, but the, the camera stays on him as you hear the mom wake up, go outside, you hear the, the car door open, and then she lets out this blood-curdling scream, but the camera never breaks from him. And it's so creepy. Because, he, I mean, right? then he you just, could... T- that, what would happen? I mean, that, that it's a, a horrific thing to go through. It's it's it, To me, it's, it's a, a crazy scene. But... Five minutes of a of a movie. It, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. Let me back up. It is the most captivating five minutes of a movie I've seen in a long time. Yeah, I, and that's saying something because I feel like I don't know. Like this is a weird parallel, but I related it <laughs> oddly back to the Dark Knight, the opening scene where you know the the Joker's are robbing the bank, right? Like I'm just in all of the scene, the way they panoed and everything like that, like you were talking about, man, they showed his face in the rear rear view mirror for a bit. Um, just all the angles, him getting in bed. I was like, yeah, I mean, there's, there's no blood or gore. There's no jump out scares. It's, but it really is one of the most horrifying scenes in the movie. It's pure acting, pure camera work. I mean, Mm -hmm. that, that to me, that that five minutes, right. It's not like it's an action packed, crazy scene. It's just like him having that mental breakdown you know, slowly going forward. It's it's really a, a fantastic scene. I don't know. But, man, I don't feel like I ever came down from that scene. After that, the rest of the movie floated for me just because of that scene. Because at that point, I'm like, well, you got me. Like, yeah. Right. Again, but, no one saw this movie. You and I were texting. It was just like, like holy shit. I hadn't watched it yet. Yeah. I hadn't watched it. You were just like 30 minute mark. It's crazy. I watched it a few days later and I'm, I texted you. I'm like, this is fucking bananas, bro. This is crazy right here. But here's the thing that the director screws up. He has this nervous breakdown. Um, they, they, they briefly kind of go back and follow the mom for a little while, you know, going through obviously the daughter's funeral. She, I think she goes back to the uh, support group. And when the, when the son reappears in the movie, you know, five or 10 minutes down the road, it's, it's like, he's back to normal. I mean, he, he's noticeably distraught the rest of the movie, obviously, but not nearly as distraught as he was in those five minutes. It's it's almost as like he's kind of gotten over it. I mean, in the remainder of the movie, he goes back to school. He has a, a normal conversations with people. Like it, they 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 break his psyche in this scene and then kind of glance over it. In fact, him and the mom don't actually have a conversation about what happened for another twenty minutes, which I mean, in the movie is like weeks later. Mm. I think that there was a little bit of a gap between, you know, that incident and, uh, you know, the follow-ons. But what I find funny, I'd have to go back and watch it. I think that family kept the car, by the way. They they didn't they didn't they didn't. I, they didn't I actually have it in my notes. Did they? Did, yeah, hundred percent. That's the same car. What do you? The Volvo Saab. I mean, it was a wagon. Right. Yeah. Right. Maybe yeah. it was like a family heirloom. It's hereditary. The, the family it's is. Hereditary. 
Yeah, the vehicle is safe for families as long as you remain in the vehicle. Um, and uh, well, the, so the backseat is stained. The backseat. So what I would say, Bobby, to, to you, like saying, "Hey, his psyche was broken," and then all of a sudden this guy rebounds, right? I think he realized that life might have changed for the better, right? Um, I mean, I'm just saying, like, sister's out of the way. She's been this weird, floating, mystical creature in in the family, you know. Compared to him, he's just been shunned. Like, hey, go to school, wear jinkos. You have you have siblings, right? Yeah, he does. Yeah, I would. I'm gonna phone them to make sure they're okay in the coming days. <laughs> <laughs> so there's I, I have on here there's a there's a neutral view of the accident there, there doesn't seem to be any sort of uh follow-on um then so the mom goes back to the support group um after the death of her daughter because obviously you know her family is going through some shit right now with the grandmother and the daughter dying within you know the the, the film doesn't do a very good job kind of telling you how much time has elapsed but I would imagine that between the death of the grandmother and the daughter, it's been maybe a week or two tops. Uh, it's been a very brief period of time. So she goes back to the support group, is kind of sitting outside in her car, can't quite get herself to go in there. Um, and before driving away, this lady walks up and says, hey, you know, you were here last time. You want to come in? Like, what's going on? She says, no, I'm, I'm good. I forgot something at home. I have to go home. And they have this conversation where the lady's like, listen, if you need something, you know, it's, it's it's very clear that you wanted to come here. You just can't make it inside. Here's my number. Give me a call. So she calls her. Um, she winds up going to the lady's house. And upon getting there, she sees that she has a welcome mat that is embroidered with her name on it. Um, so I actually wrote in my notes, who the hell embroiders a welcome mat? <laughs> this is not a common thing. It, 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 you know, write me letters. Or drop me an email if this is something that common that happens. Nobody embroiders welcome mats. And then to top it all off, she makes the comment to the lady like, oh, my mom used to embroider welcome mats. What a weird, like, not only do you do it, which nobody does, but my mom did it too. I'm just going to glance over that and come walking in your house like no problem. It, it, that was, it was too much of an obvious, like, I understand that you're trying to establish a, a a very vague connection between this lady and the grandmother um, for, you know, future purposes. But it was, it was too much of a, of an obscure connection. It, it needs to be something a little more vague that you can't draw a direct line between. You're, you're a tough critic. I mean, I mean do you agree? That's, that's insane. Wind River, man. He was just like, Oh, so I, I think, Here's here's my issue, and and a lot of this comes to um, writers, but directors as well, because directors have a lot of final say when it comes to making the movie, unless you're doing a Mar Marvel movie. Um, you you you're attempting to write something to appear natural, and it doesn't. I mean, Alec, me and you both write. Matt, I don't know if you do, if you've you know, ever tried to write a script or or something like that, but mm -hmm. it's it's very difficult to write natural. To write natural events because the natural is kind of obscure and does lend uh, some coincidences um, to itself. But when you try to write that stuff, it comes out as very obvious and and it stands out. Um, and I think that a lot of movies, you know, you we know we have to get to point B and we're at point A. So let's just 
let's just make this quick straight line and get it done and over with so we can move on with the story, which is fine, but it, it, you got to be careful because some of that stuff can come off as very obscure and just kind of out of place. And to me, this is one of those. It's a, a broidered welcome mat is obscure and out of place, in my opinion. You're correct in that, yeah, in whatever town this is, to have two welcome mat embroiderers is, uh, you know, uncanny. But right. uh, I'm I'm willing to suspend belief just like I suspend belief for any movie and keep it going. So, so, and so I also think again, right? Uh, I think Ari Aster is looking for some of those uh, those odd moments to really to capture the odd, right? The oddity in it all. Like uh, again, you say embroidered, I say personalized. Personalized welcome mats. They're not that. It's not that crazy. No, was, it's not. She was selling them on Etsy. If you wanted to find them, when you can get them on Etsy. So, so be it. So be it. Here's the other thing that's weird, though, is it'd be it'd be one thing if they were both embroidered but looked different. They have a scene later on in the movie where she's going through her mom's old boxes and she comes across some of these embroidered welcome mats, and it looks exactly the same, like exactly the same thickness. That's when she begins to realize, though, that the, the jig is up. Mm-hmm. What do you say, Matt? Like almost like a cult, almost like a cult. Oh, weird. <laughs> so she's talking to this lady, and as there, there are two things that are hop- happening simultaneously now in the movie, she's building the relationship with this lady over the course of different uh, interactions, and increasingly more stranger things are happening to the family, but specifically to the son, um, and it it becomes uh, very evident that the son has become kind of the new target for whatever was happening to the sister. There's this like weird blue light that seems to be occurring and then followed by some random, you know, something gets knocked over or, uh, you know, just obscure happenstance. Um, the mother is kind of picking up on some of this stuff and feels as though some, some, something's happening and this is leading to the husband, uh, who, by the way, we never mentioned, is played by uh, Gab- Gabriel Barn Byron. Yep. I, I thought it was Barnes. I am horrible at pronouncing names, oh. but he is, you know, the main one of the main guys in the Usual Suspects. He was in End of Days, where he plays, you know, uh, the devil. He was also in Stigmata. Um, he's been in a ton of movies. Very well known actor. Very good actor. Um, I was sad to see him in this. What? It's really, it's really a low point in his career. No, no, this is, I thought this was on par with everything you said. I mean, he's played the devil, right? This has something to do with a, a devilish uh, or a demon, right? I just, I picture him telling his uh, his agent, "Yeah, I want to play something different this time." And they're like, "You could play the normal guy. There's only <laughs> one normal guy in the whole movie, and it's you. You're the normal guy." <laughs> Defet Comics is the publishing branch of Don'tForgetATowel.com, the only place to travel geekly. Focusing on creator-owned and independent titles like Hollowed, Pursuit of Plastic, and Fairy, and many more. Defat Comics will be a mix of genres appealing to every kind of reader. Join the new source of comic book entertainment with Defat Comics. Um, so the, the husband's kind of like getting a sense that, okay, yeah, the, the, the mom's been through some stuff. My wife's been through some stuff. 
Um, I'm going to give her some time to kind of unwind and, and he gives her some rope and they have this dinner scene. Um, I, I wrote in my notes that the mom and son are playing the question game uh, back and forth where he asks her a question. She answers with a question. He answers to the question. I thought that was kind of funny. And then finally the, the, the son just says, you know, what's, is there something on your mind? That's his question. Is there something on your mind? He, yeah, he's egging her on. He knows what she wants to say, right? This needs to come out, and and it comes out like a firestorm as she berates him, calls him names, uh, and basically just says like, "Yeah, you killed your sister, you little shit," and uh, I'm tired of your your you know snot nosed mouth. And uh, like Matt alluded to earlier, the father steps in and, and kind of calms the situation down a little bit and gets them to go to their separate corners. I'm just confused how that doesn't, I mean, you said the timeline's kind of hard, kind of spotty. I don't know how that didn't happen, like, I don't know, two or three days. Day after? Right, like, <laughs> Jesus. I you wait. killed your sister. It yeah. was an accident. It was an accident. It was an accident, but you you have to assume that at some point, okay, first off, the, the cops have got to be involved, right? Yes. Eat the biggest nut cake ever. Right. I mean, so they've got to interview people at the party. Somebody's going to make comments about the brother smoking pot. So the mom's going to know that not only did you bring her to a party and left her unsupervised to eat a bunch of like a, a, a nut cake while you were smoking pot in the bedroom. Like you can't tell me this would have been an avalanche of shit the next day. I'm surprised he wasn't shipped off to boarding school within Stop. 48 hours. White privilege. Oh, that's true. Yeah. That, that covers the whole thing right there. Um, so you for this from the city for, for it. The, the other great line the mom utters in this little dinner fight was she says, uh, um, that face on your face. <laughs> She's like, that stupid face on your face. Let me, let me say this. And I don't know if we'll get into it later, but I, I really feel like the cast was fantastic. Every role was really well made for the, <clears throat> for the actor that portrayed it. No one else has Tony Collette's facial expressions. She has some of the funniest, sarcastic y, rolly of the eyes, mouth oh, yeah. and gate noises. She's perfect for this crazy woman's role. And she's been in a lot of horror movies. Um, uh, I actually recently watched Knives Out. Have you guys seen that movie? Yeah, absolutely. Really good movie. Um, noir ish. Um, it, it, was, it was a very good movie. That's kind of like the first non horror movie I've seen her in. Um, but she's been in quite a few horror movies. In fact, she said in a couple of interviews uh, post this one that she actually was looking for a not horror movie to be in when she found this script and just said she couldn't pass it up, uh, which, I mean, you have to question her sanity in real life for not being able to pass this up. Um, so she makes the comment, you know, that face on your face. They have this huge blowout. Um, what the hell is happening with the son and the mom in the night? Do you guys remember this scene? Oh, where she, uh, this is the, this is the, the she, she, she is a sleepwalker. Is that yeah. what we're talking about? So this, there's, there's a couple of things that we actually glanced over. The first one being that while the daughter was still alive, she does this weird clicking noise. Um, for whatever reason, uh, the director said that he was actually very surprised that this was something that audiences picked up on because it was a last minute ad he said, I needed something auditory um, to kind of show the, her presence after she had died. 
So he gives her this little little tick where she makes this clicking noise with her mouth. And obviously, as I just alluded to, after she dies, the family, specifically the mom, uh, begins to hear this clicking noise at various times. Um, in addition to that, one of the other things that, that we glanced over was the mom makes a uh, couple comments that she used to be a sleepwalker. And there was a specific instance, you know, let people sleepwalk. In fact, I actually uh, served with a guy whose wife was uh, at night, night terrors and would tell me stories about how she would wake up and like throw the covers off the bed and run to the bathroom thinking she had spiders on her. So <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, ser- they, it, these, these can be some serious issues that people have. Um, the mom tells a story about how the things haven't been right between her and the son since she had this, you know, minor sleepwalking thing that happened <laughs> where, where, she, where she grabbed a bunch of, um, what was it like? Kerosene uh, was it? Yeah, it was, it was oh, kerosene. Paint, paint, paint thinner maybe? It was paint thinner. That's what it was. She, she, while sleepwalking, grabbed some paint thinner, poured it all over her son and lit a match um, luckily she woke up as soon as she struck, uh, struck the match and was able to put it out before, uh, setting her son and presumably the entire house and family up in a blaze. And for some reason, he just can't overlook that, that little shit. <laughs> um, so they have this scene now. So fast forward to later on in the movie where we are now, the son is having progressively more and more frightening things happen to him. Him and the mom are definitely on outs. And the mom has another sleepwalking session where she goes into the room. And I, I don't remember if it was two different sessions or if it's in the same session. But the first time the son wakes up and the mom's at the foot of his bed and she spouts out that she never wanted to have him. That the grandmother was pushing her to have a child after it was. A, after, OK, so let's rewind a little bit. I'm getting way ahead of myself. Tony, the mom, had a brother who hung himself. And before he hung himself, he made comments about how he thought his mom, the grandmother, was trying to put people inside of him. Which is not even a foreshadowing thing. It's an all-out, like, telling you the plot of the movie right there. Mm -hmm. Um, Once the brother dies, the grandmother is pushing uh, Tony to have kids. To the point where they have a falling out. During the falling out, Tony has the son. Uh, For whatever reason, during her second pregnancy, many years later, she rekindles the relationship with her mom and has the daughter, at which point the mom comes in overbearing and decides to start breastfeeding uh, your granddaughter, because why wouldn't you? That's a normal thing. And obviously we know that the grandmother and granddaughter develop this bond. You know, the granddaughter dies. The mom says, you know, I never wanted to have you. And and they have this horrible conversation where she proceeds to tell how she threw herself down a flight of stairs while pregnant in hopes of having a miscarriage. I don't really know the point of that story. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because it doesn't I really she play. Said, I did everything not to have you. I think that's like one of the lines. Like, I did everything not to have you. It's just horrible. If it's sleepwalking, there's, there's no way you have this, like, deviant, very... Pointed sleep talking now. Hey, I'm at the foot of your bed talking. <laughs> oh, by the way, I'm just going to tell you one of the most hurtful things I can as a mother. <laughs> she's I, just, she's, she's a crazy woman. This all just adds to her 
craziness. You know, when it got me thinking, when those scenes are going on, because now, I mean, I recall those, like, again, my timing, my sequencing's a little off. Dude, those were surreal. Because, like, I was like, oh, bro, any second now, he's going to wake up missing his penis or something. You know, like, she's going to cut parts off of him. <laughs> I don't know. It was, was that too I, I didn't get that. I didn't get that part from him. But No way, man. I got creeped out. When she was standing at the foot of his bed, I was like, dude. Weird. Someone's about to lose a penis. That's what happened. <laughs> Someone's about to lose a dong. Grab your fruit carts and get out of the house, Peter. You know? so, like, so also while this is happening, the mom and her new friend from the support group uh, meet up, and the friend says, you know, oh, my God, I'm in such a great mood. I'm so happy. And the mom's like, why? What? And she's like, you, you're going to laugh at me, but I went to a seance, and I was able to talk to my dead son. Let me show you how I did it. Come back to my house. And she comes back to her house and she begins to do this seance and is able to channel her dead son, presumably. Um, but, I mean, you obviously aren't believing this woman because there's way too many coincidences. You know she's got to be involved in this cult somehow. I mean, right? At this point, at the point in the movie where you're watching and she's doing the seance, you know she's involved in the cult. I was, I mean, yeah, I was skeptical of, like, any of... I, I thought, okay, the mom has somehow dispatched... Her, her worker bees beyond, you know, beyond the grave, right? A hundred percent. So the, uh, Tony brings this back home. She's told by this strange lady, um, who she's friends with that you have to have everybody in the house. You, her exact words are, you have to have everybody in the house, including your son, make sure your son's at home. She tells her husband, check this out. Let me show you this. And she does this seance and it completely freaks out her family, but does, she is able to show some some movement and some writing and stuff like that. Um, and this is really where the son's uh, craziness starts escalating very quickly. I mean, at this point, we're in the last, what, half hour of the movie or so? The, the son starts experiencing some pretty crazy stuff, um, including, and, and probably another creepy scene um, that I thought in the movie was he's at lunch at school... And he catches the eye of somebody like across the street from the school. So he's in like some sort of gated off outdoor, you know, play area. And there's somebody across the street and they're yelling for for him, for Peter to get out of the body or to be exercised or to leave. And it's really creepy because it's very clear that at this point he must be sharing his body with somebody and they're trying to get him out of it to make room for this other thing. And that's followed by a scene in the classroom where he is unable to control himself. He slams his face down in the desk, causing a massively bloody nose, which, uh, again, watching some of the post-movie interviews, that's a real scene. He tells the director... I really want to do this. I really, I'm going to slam my face down as hard as I can. The director's like, don't do that. We don't want you to do that. We can, we can cut it so that it looks real. Don't worry about it. And on top of that, you wouldn't be able to break your nose because we're going to use a foam desk. Well, I don't know if there was a mistranslation with the crew or with the director, but because he wasn't going to actually slam his nose, they swap it out for a real desk. At which point the actor says, well, if it's foam, I'm going to go full-fledged. So he that scene where he breaks his nose, 
he said that he he almost knocked himself out. Like he really slammed his face into the desk so hard that he thought he was going to be unconscious. Um, which is insane because it does look like a real hard slam. It does. But anyway, but they're, but they're lying. He he either knew it was a foam desk or he knew it was a wooden desk. He's sitting at that desk. Your hands are on the desk. You that's you true. Gotta know, that's you know. Gotta be able to feel I'll that. But I mean, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's Hollywood, you believe, man. You, you believe that bullshit, but you don't believe this bullshit movie. It's fucking out of control. Yeah, knitting mats? That's more believable than I thought it was a foam desk. What is it? This man <laughs> Come on. I also love how they're doing the seance, and the father, like, checks under the table as if, like, did my wife install some kind of weird magnets or some shit? Bro, you got to check it. I mean, he's... That's, that's he's a great scene. Because that, that, would be, that would be my reaction. I'd be like, what the... What the fuck is going on right now? They, they also, during the seance, they flashed the camera to the dog, at which point I went, the family's got a fucking dog? <laughs> like, no way did I see this dog the whole movie. I'm like, is it a stray dog leaving the front door open? Hey, wait, man. I thought, I, I, I for certain thought that dog was going to run down the road and bring the head back. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, because a couple of times I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, did we get to the? Oh, yeah. We've already talked about it. The fact that the head just remained. <laughs> I don't know. Like, okay. Just remained? Yeah. Well, the head remained. Because where was the scene where the head has all the flies around it? I'm sure oh, the head yeah, at the end. Some point oh. got that head from somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So... So the the mom after the seance things things escalate very quickly around the house. Some weird shit starts happening. Uh, the mom randomly for no reason whatsoever starts going through old books uh, from the grandmother where she sees the um, other embroidered doormats. Uh, she also finds an album book uh, that she goes through again for no real reason and sees pictures of the grandmother with the friend from the support group. She starts tying everything together and realizing that, you know, obviously the seance probably wasn't a good idea. She has this sketchbook that's from her daughter that her daughter's ghost since the seance has been using to draw in. And she thinks, for whatever reason, if I get rid of this sketchbook, maybe I can erase everything that's happened and, and all the weird shit that I've unleashed onto my family. She throws the sketchbook into the fire, um, at which point a corner of it catches fire and a corner of her sleeve catches fire. She's unable to put her sleeve out unless she gets the sketchbook out of the fire and puts the sketchbook out. And she decides to use this as a point to show her husband, I'm not crazy. Because at this point, the husband thinks she's completely batshit loony and is trying to have her, like, commit it. So the husband comes home and she says, wait, no, please, just watch this. Just watch this. And she chucks the sketchbook into the fire. The sketchbook bursts into flames. The husband bursts into flames. And you, the camera lingers on her face, and you, you definitely see a shift happen in her facial expression. Cut to the son, who is home now. Um, and uh, it's right, he came home from the school. He's recovering a... from his broken nose. He was... Right. So he's upstairs recovering from his broken nose. Um, the Oh, that's the other thing. Before the husband dies, Tony finds the decaying corpse of her mother in the attic, um, which was apparently dug up. The father was aware of this. Somebody called him earlier and like was apologizing for what happened to the gravesite. 
And when the father and Tony had this confrontation where he says, you know, you're, you're bad shit crazy. He accuses her of doing all this. Like, did you, did you put her in the attic? Did you, you know, do this, that, and the other thing? This is one of my favorite conversations. Cause he says, she, she says, and this is like a very um, political leader type of thing to say. We'll keep it apolitical, but she's like, I'm the only one that can fix this. Like she, she's the, like all the weird shit that's happening in this house. I'm the only one that can fix it. I can make it better. No one else can yada, yada. And you can see like him processing this. And this fucking girl is absolutely, she, she is <laughs> lost her goddamn mind. My wife, you know, is crazy. So the son wakes up and comes downstairs to find the burned corpse on the, on the living room floor barbecue right he's able to decipher quickly from the wedding ring that it must be his dad there's a great shot where he's processing this while looking at the camera and behind him uh, in the ceiling rafters is his mom who's like like just creepily hanging there watching this happen full-blown spider monkey she has been taken over right i thought she was gonna jump right on him so did i yeah. And this is this is really the only jump scare in the movie because he turns around and she's gone and she comes out of nowhere and like chases him upstairs. Yeah. He, whatever reason, runs all the way up into the attic um, to at which point she is now he runs into the attic and closes the attic door. So the attic door, like most houses, is on the ceiling. The camera flashes to her on the attic door, presumably hanging in midair banging her head onto the door. Um, he gets into the attic uh, for whatever reason. I forgot why, but he ends up jumping out of the window, hits the ground. This blue light comes to his body, and he more or less just kind of stands up really well, calmly. Yeah, all the even in these up, leading up to scenes, there were cult members all around their property. And in that attic scene, there's a cult member... In the, in the in, yeah, in right. the attic with him, just off in the corner, creepily, and I think hey. he just loses it and runs out the window trying to escape. That's why. Story. That's why I say I watched this almost twice because we had to go back and watch some scenes. You know, like we were looking at specifically timed and staged well, scenes. For... The the cult members are naked. They have no clothes on them. Oh yeah, the the front yard scene where they enclose it's hilarious or interesting, whatever. You <laughs> <laughs> so he he jumps out the window the blue light uh, condenses on him he stands up really calmly and he proceeds to watch these cult members go into the treehouse in the backyard including oh that's the other thing the mom is cutting her head off with piano wire oh so when he goes outside and sees the cult members go into the treehouse he also sees the decapitated head Excuse me, the, the decapitated body of his mother floating into the treehouse as well. Uh, he then goes into the treehouse, and you see this shrine that is built to this weird, you know, demon that they have conjured, um, using that the decapitated head of his sister as the demon's head. He goes up there, and they praise him for being the reincarnation of this this weird, you know, king of of hell and it ends that's the end of the movie you know what's interesting what i just realized is i want to go back to episode one the most downloaded episode on your podcast where you and i were on it and what's interesting about that movie that we watched was that the plot was fantastic in explanation and terrible in execution 
we just explained this movie, and your listeners, the thousands of them, are like, what the fuck? This movie sounds terrible. We didn't do it justice. The movie sounds better than how it was just explained, I think, in, in my opinion. It, there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of, you know, slow build. Um, I think, you, I the think floating – it's a sound screen. There's a floating body, and there's a blue light. It sounds crazy, but as you're watching it. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't read well or sound. Is, no, this one should have been women are crazy, but sometimes there's more. <laughs> I don't – like, that was the tagline on the movie poster, I thought. I, that's the thing. is, like the whole time I'm thinking, this woman is crazy. There is nothing there. Like, yeah, the grandmother was crazy. And they're going to think they're all part of this witch, payment worshipping thing. And it's all just going to boil down to like, oh, this woman just massacred her family. But then oh, sure yeah. enough, she's Toby Maguire on the ceiling. Yeah. They, they also don't play enough into the hereditary part of it. The, yeah. the, the actual tagline of the movie is every family tree hides a secret. Yeah. There's there's really nothing hereditary about it. I mean, what is the connection between the demon and this family? Well, that's, that's the, the thing. The family, yeah, the family's been a um a long, I guess like the the heritage of the family is right. They've worshipped this uh, so then, down. why it okay? So then, why at no point in time did the grandmother try to get the mother involved in the cult? So I think right, uh, and that was the one thing that I, I honestly, I, I've been over here reading, trying to figure out if they had ever had any uh, cues or attempted to like direct our attention. But she went through some of her mother's stuff, right? She was going through some of her her mother's old belongings. I was trying to find if there was anything specifically uh, denoting like. This time, this specific, these specific instances in time were planned on happening, right? Like a prophecy, if you will, more prophetic in the sense of like, hey, the grandmother knew all this was happening. She knew her death was going to cue all these things, right? And what did um, you find? Nothing. <laughs> but it's out there, man. Uh, I mean, Ari Aster was quoted in multiple interviews saying, no, I wanted... I wanted, you know, and it's the same thing, guys, like with uh, Midsommar or Midsummer. however. You, I, I will say that movie has a little more base because it's based on like an actual uh, return, right? Like to uh, what is it, a communal, uh, a commune, a uh, communal event, though. Um, this, on the other hand, it's hard to relate to. Like, it's hard to really. If you, if this should be hard to relate to. If you related to this movie, we <laughs> would have, I would be questioning our friendship. But that was Killer's sister. He's, he's related to it. He's they, very they, they, Ari Aster is trying to say, like, multiple people were like, oh man, he really explained what suffering looks like. Like, yeah. There, there is one five minute scene, as we talked about, that is amazing in this movie. It's very well done, it's very horrific. And very relatable if you you know could imagine being in that situation. Other than that, the rest of this movie is widely over the top. It is string together plot points with loose fabrications. Uh, I, I I did not find this movie entertaining or I, scary. My buddy Alex, actually Alejo, but he's he's been white 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 out. Um, Alex. <laughs> Said that uh, this guy Ari Aster directed the first those that five minutes or ten minutes and then just made a movie around it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's very well put. He showed up, did this scene, and was like, "Okay, let's fit some other pieces and see if we can make a movie." Like, no kidding. But yeah. you, you know, what's funny is I did I got that sense. I got the sense that he had these 
great scenes and had to find a way to string them together. And then I go into the details on this movie. This movie was shot in 32 days, which is just insane. Which, again, to me, lends credence to the point of I, I don't think he had a developed enough story. Yeah. I would I, not take 32 days as that. I would look at it positively and say this dude's hyper-organized. He knew exactly shot for shot, scene for scene, exactly what he wanted to accomplish and didn't waste any time. I would say, too, that you you mentioned it, right? He has a lot of shorts, a lot of uh, yeah. mini, mini motions. So This like, is his first feature film. Yeah, I would say I would say that it, that kind of showed through this uh, this film, right? Like he's able to string some scenes together or really make some really crazy good scenes where you're like, what? I mean, the seance, the table, the dad, the son, the first time you notice the dog because you're just so enthralled with some of the scenes, his cinematography, the way he laid out some of his shots, really good stuff. But ultimately kind of like, I mean, in your words, right? Something to be, uh, something to be uh, left or I guess, you know, he didn't, he didn't really lay out the movie well, but I think he had really good five to 10 minute sequences. So, so uh, according to him, Hereditary is a film about suffering and it's supposed to convey that above all else, yep. which I mean, I, I will say that he executed on that. The, the movie made me suffer through um, <laughs> the entire thing. Um, so, I mean, you guys are both previous guests on the show. I'm not going to go through the whole spiel, but it is time for our five questions. Um, what we'll do is I'll ask the question and then I'll let you know who is going to answer first and we'll go back and forth to keep it fair. Uh, question number one, what aspects of the storytelling were done right and which were done wrong, and who do you give credit for? Let's go with Alec first on this one. So the scene that they did right uh, for me, you hit it on the opening sequence earlier, which I really liked how they kind of zoomed in on the model, and then they kind of made that the actual room. Uh, but I think that overall, the directing was good. I think that, you know, we talked about the scene with where the daughter loses her head. Um, the telephone pole and kind of that that mental breakdown was fantastic. So I think that that all went very well. And you know, I want to really give out. We didn't discuss it too much, but you know, the lead female Tony, I think that she did an amazing job. And she's someone that has been in movies, but she hasn't really carried a movie before. I don't think, and at least not to this extent that I've seen. And I think she really did a fantastic job. Yeah. So this movie comes out in 2018. Uh, it is one of five movies that she was in that came out that that year, which is insane. Uh, excuse me, four movies and a TV series. She was in uh, six episodes of a TV series, which is just insane. Um, she's been in a lot of movies, but you're right. I don't think she's really carried any movies. Um, probably some B movies. She was in Krampus, uh, Devil's Playground. So she's been in some like B movies, um, and she might have starred in one or two of those. Um, but this really is like probably one of her, her forefront starring roles. Uh, Matt, what do you think? What, what's uh, good and bad about this movie, and who do you give credit for? All right, you guys you guys give me a little uh, redirect if I get off base here. But the dad, Steve, right? He walks into, the, walks into her, um, her studio, right? And she has laid out the scene. She has created a miniature of her daughter's head being knocked off. Yeah, you know, good point, because I totally glanced over that, because that's another yeah. miniature she makes that is 
just insane that a mother would want to relive that by making a miniature. And the the normal father walks in and is like, what are you fucking serious right now? And then proceeds to tell, don't let the son see that. Cause he would freak out. He should freak out. <laughs> well, again, right. It, it goes back to him trying to normalize everything because he's a therapist. It goes back to her coping via what she does as a profession. Right. So we bring our work to home or we bring ourselves again, Bobby, this is why I say, People relate, even though we're not full spectrum crazy cultist. He, you know, I think directors try to get us to relate in some capacity, and and that's you know how he did it, right? Like whether he did it intentionally, I, I don't know. He's never been questioned, but she projected her her suffering into her work, and that's the only way probably she was able to cope at that time. And then the other scene is, which maybe I'm giving away to another question, but you know when he asked. Yeah, the, you know, the son's going through and through and he's like, oh, you know, like, why did why did you try to kill me? Um, and she's like, no, I wasn't trying to kill you. I was trying to save you. Right. Like she was saying by having a miscarriage, she knew that she would have been doing Peter a, a service and keeping him from this jacked up family and uh, what was about to unfold. Right. So, yeah, no, I mean, totally. She's she's a great mother. She should be hailed as that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> quick. Question number two, what is the biggest unanswered question for you about the movie? And do you think it was done intentionally? Let's go with Matt on this one. Uh, I, again, I, I go to the sequel, right? Um, I, did, I didn't like, once we got uh, probably 45, maybe even an hour into it, I wasn't happy that I didn't have more backstory with the grandmother. Um, and I think that's just natural curiosity. So uh, maybe they do a sequel, prequel, because... I feel like they. I feel like he has a lot of material. I think he's got a big enough following now, um, between his two movies that are really like bonkers and have their own like uh, cult following, if you will. But uh, yeah, I, I, I see what you did there. That was good. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, that was the most. That was the most aggravating, aggravating thing for me because, yeah, I was with you on the back half of the movie, Bobby. I'm like, dude, there, it's just crazy stuff at random now. You know, this guy just. Had a crazy dart wheel, and he just threw darts. It was like, sweet. We're going to have her climb into the rafters. We're going to have her her head off with a piano wire. I didn't see a piano. So, you know. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, just just little things like that, I think, would have given people a little more flashbacks, right? Take a piece out of a normal director playbook. Do some flashbacks. Show maybe the, the daughter, be, the mom being raised and having weird cultish happenings gatherings them knitting stuff or whatever or making welcome <laughs> doormats yeah doormats i just think you do that and boom you've really connected with people who are uh basic layer skeptics like yourself so here's what i want i want the prequel to be about the the suicide brother and and that whole storyline but i gotta have a scene in there where the cult members are coming together and they're all like lugging their their sewing kits and their sewing machines from their cars and making like real demonic doormats. Yeah. That's Ooh, what I want to see. Over where if you flip it over, it actually has a sign of some kind of, yeah, the payment sign, right? Like this house is a house of payment. Right. So that's, here's the other thing. Payment is one of like 12 yeah. Kings of hell. So you could do this movie a couple more times and then a couple <laughs> more people come, come back and be possessed. Um, so Alec, what about you? What's the biggest unanswered question? Um, I don't buy into unanswered questions that much. You know, I think that he told the story he wanted to tell. He obviously wrote and directed this. So I think that he told the story he wanted to tell. 
For me, uh, you know, the the unanswered questions are certainly flashbacks um, to, you know, what happened to the brother, what happened with the mother, even her growing up. You know, she's obviously even before this, you see that she's a crazy person, right? She is someone that has some instabilities going on in her life. And so what brought that about? Obviously, the grandmother, I'm sure, played a huge part. So I, I would love to see the grandmother a, a bit more. Um, and understand how devilish she was. So, so that was another thing that was touched on in a lot of the interviews was that this grandmother who essentially, uh, she's the leader of the cult. She sets all this kind of in motion with her death. Mm-hmm. She's had an influence on the daughter. She's had an influence on the granddaughter. She obviously had an influence on her son, um, Tony's brother in the movie. She's also not in the movie. And she's, I mean... There, at no point is, is there a flashback to her. There's no voiceover of her. There, there's a couple pictures, but that's it. And obviously a dead body towards the end. But, but isn't, um, that, isn't that great though? Isn't that like the highlight? Like I think created this world. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not taking anything. Been. I'm not taking anything away from him. I think he. This being his first movie. Um, first off, to do 80 million on a 10 million dollar budget is phenomenal. And I think it was moderately well done. I mean, I'm, I'm a harsh critic. I'll admit that. Um, but I, at no point was I, you know, getting ready to turn the movie off. I, I did find several things uh, a bit far-fetched and maybe even slightly comical. But while watching it, it didn't take me out of the story. Um, and obviously there were a couple of scenes that I thought he did, you know, really well. I, I could see him getting better. I could see him becoming a better director as time goes on. Um, but this, in my opinion, wasn't a good movie when comparing it to some of the other, you know, great movies. So question number three, personal connection is important. I can't wait to hear Matt's answer to this. Was there anything that happened in the movie that reminded you of a real life story that happened to you? Let's start with Alec. Ooh, a real life story. What has happened in here that's a similar? I, I don't have any experience with the paranormal. I haven't. I haven't lost a daughter. I don't know anyone that's been decapitated. Um, maybe my mom's a bit crazy. Maybe she's a bit eccentric. Mom, don't listen to this. Um, when when you had your daughter, at any point in time, did your mom need to babysit? And, and my, my my mom was not breastfeeding my daughter at any moment that I'm aware of. That I you're aware of. of. I wasn't around all the time. Um, I mean, who's more experienced? than a grandmother at breastfeeding a baby. That's nobody I ask myself that every day. And you know you can lack you can so long as someone is sucking your lactate, you can go off you know you can lactate for a long that time. Was, that was a question I had that I wasn't gonna ask, but yeah, I mean you have to imagine it's been quite a long time since the mother, the grandmother needed to produce milk. I, can't I think it's, the, it's the latching. It's teaching the baby to latch is my assumption. I mean, I guess at this point, if you're, if you're, you know, resurrecting uh, Kings of hell, there's probably a spell that you can do just to kind of produce some milk. Mother's milk. Mother's <laughs> milk, specifically. Or grandmother's milk. Matt, what about you? Anything that, uh, <laughs> in this movie that you have a real life story behind? no, no, uh, I, I, I guess I closely or most related to Steve. It's just a normal dude trying to de-escalate. Kind of th- again, man. It goes back to question two, like maybe one. I don't know two. Yeah. How in the hell did Steve wind up in this family? 
like I want to go back to that wedding day where old Tony or whatever her name is and Steve are like saying the I do's and having that moment because there has to be some kind of normalcy, right? So I guess that's what I'm most related to is Steve's reactions, right? Like, okay, this <laughs> Just, is I, yeah, or she's like, yeah, I mean, I'm assuming she's wearing some kind of weird like wrist bandolier of thorns and pulling it tighter and staining her daughter's dress with blood and making some weird omen or, you know, squirting milk into the punch. That's the most relatable that happened at my wedding. No, (laughs) (laughs) that's the thing for me is right. Like the way he was reacting, he's trying to, he's trying to do the right thing, deescalate. But yeah, I mean, I guess really you pointed out all those failures and flaws in the, uh, the normalcy or relatable aspects that, like, how does this guy stay in this marriage? How does he not take his son from the home? Probably at an earlier occasion. I'm. That's where I was just like, nope, sorry, I'm out, man. I'm getting my Volvo. I've got a good salary. I can disappear. So she's going to have to do a, a, a lo- location finder spell or something. <laughs> There's also another thing which seems relatively mediocre to even bring up. There is a 22-year age difference between the actors uh, that play the husband and wife in this movie. Oh, wow. Um, which, I mean, I guess in the grand scheme of things is really kind of a mute point. Her, uh, fa- her face looks old, though. She looks... I mean, crazy will do that to you. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it also could have been makeup. They did the same thing with the daughter. They made her look a little crazier. Uh, question four. What is the most important sequence in the movie? Matt, we'll go with you first. Come on, we've already nailed that one. I, I we, mean, yeah. does I mean, does Al, you got a different answer than that? I mean, because I, I think that's what we go with, right? That's what we have no, to. Well, I, I'm gonna say that my he's a naysayer. <laughs> no, no, I'm gonna say that I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna say my favorite sequence, other than the headless scene. Um, my other favorite sequence is the part where Steve, the dad, the father, the husband, has to go up into the attic. I mean, there's a really good argument that ensues because now he's fully on board that this bitch is crazy. And he thinks that you have gone to the to the uh, cemetery and dug up this, this, you know, your mother's body and put her in this house and done all these crazy things. And he's this is the point where he's actually for the first time, really, in a lot of ways. Now he's really upset. Like now he's like this. This, when I <laughs> this has gone I, far enough. This is the line that I, <laughs> that I have to draw in the sand. Do you think it was that point that he was like, you know. You seen a movie by yourself seems a little odd. I, well, I think that Matt said it earlier. Like, if that happened to me, I would be suspicious right off the bat, and that would always be in the back of my head. And I would be looking for something to blame. Like, you know, I would be looking for a coincidence to blame it on. While you were out watching that movie, this happened in town. A liquor store was robbed. Did you do that? <laughs> you know, or whatever. You know, did you dig up that body? Um. Okay. So, question number five: If you could recast two roles in the film, what roles would they be? Who would you recast in them, and why? Alec, you're first. So I think that the only two acceptable answers to me are you have to recast the children. Because in many ways, I don't think anyone's doing as good as the as the, the female lead, Tony Collette. And Gabriel Byrne is just such a chill dude. Like, it's just, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do the children um, for the... Can I do? Can you do any actor at any period? Does it have to be somebody current? No, we'll go any any period. It's All fine. right, good. I'm gonna, I'm gonna open it up a little bit. I'm gonna do for the daughter. I'll say a younger 
Dakota Fanning, who is a good child actress. Okay, I, I like that. Be, yeah, carry that role. And again, she's not in it very much, right? But um, maybe with Dakota, because the quality of of actress, maybe she she lives a little bit longer, or she has a little bit more dialogue. But I could see Dakota Fanning doing that role. For Peter, the son, um, I will say that the person I would replace him with, uh, only because I really like him as an actor, uh, and I, I like you, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but he's coming out in Dune very soon. Uh, I'm crushing right now on Timothy Shamalat, I believe his name is. Shamalat. He's in Dune. He was in uh, the, the King on... Um, which is a Netflix movie, which is a, a fantastic movie about Henry VIII, uh, I believe. Uh, and he's been in a few other things, but he's he's coming up. This dude, this kid is coming up. Yeah, he's, he's a he's been he's been in a few things: Little Women, The King, uh, A Rainy Day in New York. Um, nothing really that stands out though. You, if you if you saw him in The King, and you're gonna you might even be blown in Dune. This kid's legit. Um, so he he's gonna be a really talented actor. Is that where you saw him? Was in the King? I saw him in the King. I've seen it like six times. That's how good it is. He plays Hal. Huh? I'm yeah, but Hal, Hal turns into the King. Well, spoilers. I haven't seen it yet. You don't know your 1760 medieval medieval English history? Uh, I'm only familiar with the 1750s. I didn't go to the 1760s, unfortunately. Not even no no 700 700. 760. Right. Well, that's my problem. It's I went to the 1750s. <laughs> not as not as vibrant with uh, King analogies. Uh, Matt, what about you? Recasting two roles. Who are you going? Oh, my gosh. Um, I'm going to be opposite, you know, because Alec chooses to be opposite. Um, I see Gabriel Byrne. I still think that's how you say his name. I see him very similar to N. McShane. N. Shane. N. McShane. The dude that's in uh, the John Wick movies is the guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Keanu Reeves? No, thank you. No. He's... He was also in American Gods. Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah. Um, he's been in a lot. If you, if I, I have to pause you right there. I'm sorry to do this. If you have not seen American Gods, watch that. That's it is a very job. interesting take on some modern day mixed with old it's just it's really good um ian mcshane is his name uh very famous actor he's been on a ton of different things including deadwood john wick he was in pirates of the caribbean briefly yeah this is an odd select are we back on the air this is an odd selection yeah no way they they have a very so i will say gabriel Byrne right a little more i mean he he gives off the devilish uh Mm -hmm. in comparison to N. McShane, but N. McShane can pull that off if given the opportunity. Uh, he can. He's typically more of a, a one-liner wise, like I don't know, probably a little less depth, if you will, character base. But um, yeah, I think I think Ian McShane uh, definitely has s- some some Eon. supernatural appearance to him, though, as well. Like, that what are you what are you saying there, Eon or N? Ian. 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 I-A-N. Ian. Number one, can we just talk about you all's accents? Because, uh, Bobby, how do you say miniature and how do you say pecan? Miniature and pecan. Miniature. Miniature. How do you say it? It's just miniature. It's not miniature. 
Miniature. Miniature. There I think go. I want to say Minotaur. And you also say pecan funny. Pecan. I'm you, you, were saying, you were saying it interestingly. Pecan. 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 Yeah. I usually say pecan. Pecan pie. I'm pretty sure you can get away with saying miniatur. <laughs> Minotaur? Minotaur. Uh, I don't know who I'd cast as. Uh, what's it, what's what's her name again? Tony Collette. Tony Collette. Um, you know what Tony Collette reminds me of? She. I feel like she. <laughs> Ian McShane. Ian McShane. <laughs> Ian McShane. No, uh, I think Tony Collette could have been great in Stir of Echoes with Kevin Bacon years oh, back. Very true. I, I just that's that's her essence, right? So like I tried to think who was the actress in Stir of Echoes, but that both the psychiatrist lady or the hypnotizer lady, she's mm-hmm. no, her and Tony Collette don't vibe. And then the wife and Tony Collette don't really vibe. But either way, I feel like Tony Collette and Stir of Echoes, right? Like she would have been some kind yeah. of tremendous in that movie. Join um, us in season two when me and Matt do Stir of Echoes. <laughs> that's you a know, good if I could cast recast Tony Collette, if, and we were making this into a comedy, I would go with Molly Shannon from Saturday Night Live. I mean, she she has the same kind of comical mannerism. She's very animated. I could see her doing that role. So it's funny you say that because I was gonna pick uh, as a throwback to episode one, my most downloaded episode. Um, I was gonna make this into a comedy and do The Rock and Kevin uh, Hart as the two kids. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it'd be great. Kevin Hart already said that hello, everybody, so he's immediately decapitated. And... <laughs> no, I think you make him the older brother. That's what makes it funny. <laughs> I want to see Kevin Hart pretending like he's, his, his esophagus is swollen from eating nuts. <laughs> you know, he's, he's, he's so animated. But I want, I want the rest. <laughs> I want all the other scenes to be exactly the same. I think you guys are, uh, yeah, no. Mm. I, we're we're totally crapping on it. This is the second movie I ruined for Matt, and I feel really bad. He's never going to come back on the podcast now. So you didn't ruin this movie for me. This movie ruined itself after I watched it because I was like, oh, I'm never going to watch that again, right? So it's like during the movie, I'm engaged, I'm impressed. Like I'm like, man, I could never imagine watching this at home. Like knowing kids could walk in at any moment because this is you can't. There's parts you can't explain. Um, but I ooh, I know who I was going to say, Tony Collette. Um, what's her name that plays in Kill Bill? Oh, Uma Thurman, yeah. There you go. So, like, Uma and her, they carry the same bang line. They can generally act the same. Uma Thurman's a little more attractive. But I think Uma could get on her level in this. Uh, you know, Uma's got crazy eyes in a couple movies she does. Um, Uma's got crazy eyes, that's for sure. So I just think I think uh, it would be a little more rangy for her and outside of her, again, her depth. But man, Uma is just a better-looking Tony Collette, um, and that's if you're into Uma Thurman. I'm not; she's not really in my, you know, my lineup either, if you will. She's an acquired taste. Yeah. So this movie premieres. Uh, it actually comes out in Sundance in January of 2018, um, but then premieres uh, June 8th, 2018. Uh, it, it's it's. I don't know. I don't know what to make of the movie. Um, it comes out the same time or same same time as Ocean's Eight. Um, so here are the top five movies uh, for June eighth, twenty eighteen. Number one, Ocean's Eight. That is the Sandra Bullock uh, remake ish. I, I actually hadn't seen it, 
It didn't look that interesting to me, but I believe it's actually not a remake. There's some sort of tie-in to the originals. You, you saw it, Matt? He's brothers with uh, Danny Ocean. Oh, no, I watched just enough to realize that it's not good. Um, <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah, it's just too much. It's too much. They tried. Uh, number two is Solo, a Star Wars story, uh, followed by Deadpool 2. Uh, Hereditary premieres at number four, and then bringing up the rear in its probably, uh, excuse me, its seventh week, uh, Avengers Infinity Wars. T- tough, tough cast. I mean, that that's, all those movies, in my opinion, are moderately well, and, uh, other than the Oceans movie, but those other ones are bangers. Correct. And this is, so Oceans 8 uh, comes out this weekend. So it's the first week, premieres at number one, and then I believe it has a very steep drop-off. I mean, that movie um, does not hang around very long. Um, so one of the other games we like to play, and before I get into this, because I'm, I'm sure you both know what's coming, Matt, there is quite a bit of controversy. I don't know if you've watched the episodes that uh, preceded you. So Matt was the first person so far in the podcast to guess the correct score. And there was quite a few people that accused you of cheating and looking up the score prior. That's well, I mean, luckily those uh, those accusations fall deaf because I have yet to hear those accusations out loud. Well, I wanted to give you a chance to re- respond to them before we go into the next segment, which is guess that tomato. Absolutely not. Uh, although I, I think our circumstance was odd because I had looked at the audience or the the yeah i looked, looked at the like the critic score and then you guessed the audience one or something along okay. those lines i i don't remember but there was one where i had specifically not looked at um i don't remember which one you asked me at this point but he he guessed it right on the dot right on the dot i did not you you guessed it right on the dot and then i gave you the hint and then you changed it and it was it was you changed it like you lowered it a couple points or something like that so you want to go on the record and say that you did not look at the score prior Absolutely not. Because, no, Wind River? No way, man. I just knew that movie. Plus, you gave me three really good references. Well, I mean, so that's what I do here. It's my job. I got, I got it wrong. And then you said, I can't I can't even remember the movies, but the second batch of movies you gave me, I was like, oh, well, then it's definitely lower, but it can't be much lower. I think I went with two points, and I nailed it. Okay. I mean, I just want to get, like I said, I want to give you a chance to, uh, to hey. silence all of the haters out there I, who uh, are throwing shade. No, I, I definitely, uh, definitely Google research during these things, but I'm, I'm, I'm reading material. I'm reading content. I'm trying to provide some, some decent listening material to these haters that call themselves podcast fans, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm going to ask you guys to guess the audience score for 2018's Hereditary. Alec, you're first. <laughs> Alec can go first. There we go. Uh, do I? So no hints for the first go around. Hints for the second go around. Exactly. Yep. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead, again, I think this was well-received. I think you look at the financial gains from it. People had to have liked it. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say 74. Okay, Matt? I'm going 82. If that's right, I'm fighting Matt. I'm like, <laughs> I have not looked. That's what I'm saying. So I will tell you guys that the uh, critic score for this movie is an 89. Which helps you in no way whatsoever, because as this podcast has proven, the critic score can, you know, sometimes be directly on the audience score and sometimes can be at the polar opposite end of the spectrum. But here are the three movies that are within two points, plus or minus, of this movie's audience score. You ready? 
Movie number one, Ocean's Eight, which also oh premiered God. the exact same day and comes I'm, out as number one. I'm changing mine to a 16. <laughs> movie number two, one of Alex's favorite, Magic Mike XXL. <laughs> no. Okay, so this movie has bad scores. And movie three, Pitch Perfect 2. Oh, that's the a solid. That's a solid 65er. That's a solid 65er. Okay, so... The, uh, the interesting thing about the scores that you gave us, though, and, and maybe I'm a bit off, because hey, Matt... Wait a minute. A I thought you had three more movies in the to float. No, that's it. Just those three. Uh, so, I, I get to say wipe and start... I want another three. <laughs> <laughs> what were you going to say, Alec? You, those are all... And Matt loves them, but they're all women movies. Right, Ocean Eight's a woman movie. Magic Mike obviously caters to a, a woman's audience, and then you know his favorite movie of all time, Pitch Perfect One, Pitch Perfect Two, Pitch Perfect Three. Well, well, based on on Matt's love for um, you know, his specific type of alcohol, I figured I had to you know geared towards my audience. I'm more of a rom com guy, so I Hitch. don't care. What, what is, where is Hitch? Yeah, where is Hitch? Is Hitch? If you, because I know what Hitch currently sits at, both critic and audience. <laughs> I follow that movie every day on IMDb. So, so Matt, you made Alec go first. I'm going to make you go first. A second go around. You originally guessed 82. What is your revised guess? I'm going to go. I, ugh, I'm going to go 64. <laughs> Alec, go ahead. You have to go lower, right? I mean, you, he, you originally guessed 74. Uh, what, what, let me ask this. I want to beat Matt. That's really all I care about in this situation. <laughs> Do I? Can I go over and still be good? Yeah, yeah. This isn't Price is Right. I'm going. I'm going. What he guesses, sixty-two, sixty-four. I'm going sixty-five. Sixty-five, baby. Lock it in, Dano. <laughs> the the correct uh, audience score for Hereditary 2018 is sixty-seven. Dang it! <laughs> Alec is closer by one by one point. Suck it, man. So now, we all know I won though because I I put him on that track. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and that's the that's the argument that every person on Price is Right makes. Um, yeah. So I mean, let's g- give me your give me your last uh, you know ten second soundbite on this movie. What 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 is your uh, what is your feeling, uh, Matt? Watch it once. Don't uh, don't hate just because Bobby does. <laughs> Alec, what about you? Uh, this movie's on Amazon Prime, paid sponsorship with the show. Uh, so you can go ahead and watch it there for nothing. So give it a go. And uh, Fruit Cart, Golden Road Brewing, Los Angeles, California. Um, if you're listening, I enjoy your product. I think Bobby and Alec would too if we were able to rekindle a physical friendship someday in the near future. <laughs> and I... by physical, we mean getting fruity. We mean real weird <laughs> Fingers are going to be moist. Oh, I, I should have said presents. And yes, yeah. moist fingers are probably going to be. <laughs> Let's get this. So uh, finally, uh, it's a firm believer of the owners that don't forget a towel. That everybody geeks out on something. While it may not be comic books and movies, it might be hard seltzer and abnormally large quantities of pictures and frames behind you on the wall. Um, why don't you guys give me what you're geeking out on right now? Let's start with Alec. So um, uh, movie theaters have just opened up in New Jersey. So go see Tenant. 
Uh, Christopher Nolan's newest movie. It is good. I encourage everyone to go watch it probably more than once because you're going to need to. But, uh, you know, as we, you know, get back to a little bit more of a normal thing, as hopefully people practice social distancing, uh, you know, movie theaters are an important piece of uh, our culture, in my opinion. So we got to keep them open. We got to keep it going. So uh, do what you can. Matt, what about you? What are you geeking out on? Uh, my turn. Uh, Sean Watson, pass it on. New book. So everybody thinks, hey, he's just a $160 million quarterback for four years now with Houston. Uh, but he's got a good book. He takes a lot of uh, a lot of good words and uh, good knowledge from other other individuals throughout the U.S. Sorry, I say good words, right? Uh, I don't my, know which is more impressive: him writing the book or you reading it. <laughs> my daughter, my daughter walked in, so good words is all I can think about. <laughs> I just say one or two very specific words to her. Um, but no, yeah, pass it on. So Deshaun Watson, uh, appreciate the man for more than his, uh, athleticism and, uh, what he brings to the NFL and what his fantasy points do for you. Well, guys, I really appreciate as always you coming on the show. It's always a pleasure to have some laughs with you. Um, anything you want to plug before we sign off? It's great being friends with two amazing gentlemen. It's too bad. Those guys couldn't be here. Thanks guys. I really appreciate it. It keeps saying you're unavailable. Not emotionally either. He can't hear me. You're not logged in? I am logged in. Okay, you're on, you're John Matthew Scruggs, correct? Oh, no, you're John Scruggs. Who the hell is John Matthew Scruggs? I've been inviting the wrong person to this conversation. Yeah, technically, legally, I'm, I'm, yeah. Hey! You got... You got a studio, and I'm in my my bedroom. <laughs>